All right, so Matt, what do you call a fish with no eyes? I don't know. Fish. Oh, <laughs> I was thinking of the deer with no eyes thing. Yeah, yeah, no idea. No, this is just fish. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? I'm hot. Are you? It's, man, it is hot. It is humid. I am sweating. Yeah. You can see the light glowing off my <laughs> bald head. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's humid here, too, man. It It's bad. I guess y'all are about to get the storm that we got last night. It's moving it up your way. way, so good luck with it. It killed our power here last night so let's hope it doesn't do that while we're recording that's right <laughs> we are proud members of the podbelly network go check them out at podbelly.com yep matt's wearing his podbelly shirt today <laughs> if you're watching the video of this he's he just flashed you his uh, podbelly um, <laughs> that sounds awful it does man and i apologize for anybody who saw his podbelly um uh, but <laughs> Go check out podbelly.com to find some new shows to listen to and to find out information on how to record a podcast if you're interested. Now, Matt, before we get into it, I just ran across this weird fact today, and I thought I would share it with everybody and get your opinion on it. Um, I look up weird stuff sometimes, right? And uh, so this happened to pop up. Did you know that in Utah, it is illegal to swear in front of a dead person. Really? Yep. It's a Utah law that you cannot swear in front of a dead person. I'm not really sure why you would, but I'm also not really sure why it would be illegal. Yeah, I don't know why why you can't. I mean... Now, though, yeah, those laws are always so much fun, but I always want to know what prompted the law. That's, That's what I want to hear is the story that made them go, we need to make a law. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Like, uh, you know, you're not somewhere you're not allowed to pet wild skunks. And I'm like, well, why do, why do you need a law that says it's illegal right. to pet wild skunks? I'm just not going to, you know. <laughs> That's like saying it's illegal to lick your finger and shove it in a light socket. Yeah, you know? yeah. Do we really have to make that illegal? I'm. <laughs> maybe we do i don't know you know it's like the the people who tested preparation a through g you know yeah right <laughs> i feel sorry for those people if they didn't work out so and as as great as we are with non sequiturs matt tell us what are we talking about tonight okay so tonight we're looking at another haunted place with a lot of bad juju um for There's sure. just a, a a lot of bad history uh, behind this place, and it's really it's really not even there anymore. 
Um, right. The majority of it's been torn down, and we're going to get into that. But we are looking at the Danvers State Hospital, also known as uh, the the Danvers Lunatic Asylum. Right. Which, that's one of those you know one of those terms that didn't age well no it didn't you know (laughs) the uh, lunatic asylum just sounds like it's from a 1920s oh yeah you know horror movie oh yeah yeah it's definitely not something that we would call anything today you know there there is there is by by no means would that be something that anybody would go, hey, you know what we should call this? A lunatic asylum. <laughs> you know. It's just but well, I the mean, term the term lunatic. People, yeah. It just the term lunatic is it's not really used except, you know, in in in, in humorous terms. You right. Know? It's just it's it was a legitimate term. Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. Um and it's just it, it just kind of got morphed into people that were suffering from mental illness and now it's i don't even know if it's you know you can tell me, i don't even know if it's derogatory anymore i think you know people hear me say it and i'm just kind of like it's it's just a ridiculous word now yeah um but well, yeah it, it did not it did not age well no so. <laughs> it didn't but like matt said it, it's got a lot of a lot of history and we won't we won't get into all of it but we will talk about the pertinent stuff, and um, if you wanna, if you wanna find out more, um, as we always say, go down to the bottom of our show notes, and you can find the sources where we got this from. You can see what we've talked about, and you can expand on that and find out more. Um, but let let's go ahead and get into it. As as Matt said, it's the Danvers State Hospital, uh, yeah. which was the main term for it. Um, or the Danvers Lunatic Asylum, which if you look, if you look stuff up on it, you're going to see a, a lot of it as the Danvers Lunatic Asylum because that that brings that's what it was known as. Yeah, that time. that brings more of the history into it. But it sits on top of Hawthorne Hill near Boston. Now. At one time, it occupied over 500 acres on this hill, and it's variously known as Hawthorne Hill, Porter Hill, and Dodges Hill. Now, we got we to gotta talk about the history of the land for a second, and the judge that presided over the Salem Witch Trials, John Hawthorne, once lived here several hundred years ago, um, and some, we, we, we know that emotions and violence and everything were high during the Salem witch trials. So that dark history has probably cursed that land that the building sat on. And, you know, it was bad. The Salem witch trials were bad. And if you want to hear more about that, go check out episode 10 from January 5th of 2018, where we dove in to the Salem witch trials. So that, you know, go back and listen to that after you listen to this and you'll see why, this area may have, like Matt said at the top of the show, the the bad juju that it has. 
So the Commonwealth purchased the site in 1874 from Francis Dodge, and it was covered with established oak, pine, and apple groves. So they had to tear all that down to even build anything there. Well, the state lunatic hospital at Danvers was erected under the supervision of prominent Boston architect Nathaniel J. Bradley. Um, And this was in an extremely rural, out-of-the-way location, especially for the time. Um, But the immediate crisis which uh, made this building a necessity was the imminence of, in the early 1870s, of the closing of the facility at South Boston. So a facility that they were using for, you know, mental health and recovery and stuff like that closed down. And so they needed a place to put these people that they had locked up, you know. And so yeah. they it in this Danvers State Hospital needed to be built. Now, in 1873, Worcester, Taunton, and Northampton, and the 1866 Turksbury Asylum for chronic patients were already housing 1,300 patients in the building designed for 1,000, and another 1,200 were scattered about in various other hospitals. That gives you an idea, because that was something that we we see when we talk about other asylums and, and state-run hospitals, that the building itself was meant for only a certain number of people, and yet they would routinely have hundreds more, sometimes mm-hmm. even double what the intended capacity was. Now, that in and of itself causes problems. Absolutely, yeah. Big problems. Yep. I mean, if, if, if you've ever worked in an emergency room, okay, and... I and have not, but and, I know something, people. I, I know we have listeners that have, and yep. I know Amanda has. Yep. Um. But if, if you've ever done that, you you know what it's like when there are no more rooms in the inn and you've got patients in the hallways sitting in chairs, lying on gurneys mm-hmm. because there's nowhere to put them. Right. And and they're they're everywhere and you're dodging patients and they're they're right there by the nurses station. And it is just a chaotic mess. Yep. And God bless all those people that can do that, I could not. Right. That that would that would send me over the edge. But you think about how chaotic that is, and and the system that kind of helps you move along and keep working for those hours that you're there and get those people taken care of. Imagine tripling that, and that's every single day. Right. That's the kind of problems that they ran into at Danvers because, yeah. you know, these, these places were, were overrun. I mean, they're, they're building this facility because the other places are overrun. <laughs> right. Yeah, you exactly. And, and, and we'll get into here in a minute just how crowded Danvers was. And it, it puts um, Matt's. What Matt was saying into perspective there, because it it is like an overcrowded emergency room all the time, and it and it it just we'll get into what problems that caused and and have some examples of that as well. 
Um, but Danvers included space for patients, attendants, and administration reflecting on a centralized approach to care. So they had everybody there all the time, and it, it was, you know, this is where everything's going to be handled is in this facility. Um, later buildings were added, such as the male and female nurses' homes, um, which represent the segregation of patients and staff at that point, you know, all the males in one area, all the females in another area. Um, they also had the male and female tubercular buildings. So people with tuberculosis were put into, as we've talked in other, um, you know, m- mental hospitals that we've talked about, you got tuberculosis patients in there as well. Yeah. Which seems odd to me looking back on it. I don't know why that was what they did, but they did do that. Um, But also the Bonner Medical Building, um, which represented the specialization of medical treatment. So they had, you know, after being around for a little while, they started expanding on their facility and creating special wards for different types of patients. Um, but the cottages, repair shops, and farm buildings that were there represent an increased self-sufficiency for the hospital and emphasis on occupational therapy and increased dispersal of the hospital population. Um, there were interior roads and roads that ran along the outside circumference of the complex as well. So it became its own little town. They had, you know, places that the doctors could get their shoes repaired and, live in the cottages and then you get stuff from the farm and it it just became its own self-sufficient thing. Like they were talking about the centralized approach to care. It was also the centralized just ward for everybody. The hospital opened on May 1st, 1878 and the hospital's first patients arrived on May 13th. So not long after they opened, did they get their first patients? Now, Dr. Calvin S. May was appointed the superintendent through 1880. Well, before Danvers, Dr. May was an assistant physician at the Connecticut Hospital for the Insane. There's another name that wouldn't have made it till today. Um, But he was assistant physician there from 1874 to 1877. uh, And for 1877 was acting superintendent. So he's been around these type of facilities for a while. Um, Now, while Danvers was originally established to provide residential treatment and care to the mentally ill, its functions expanded, like we were just talking, to include a training program for nurses in 1889 and a pathological research laboratory in 1895. So they started building on and doing a lot more. Now, by the 1920s, the hospital was operating school clinics to help determine mental deficiency in children. So, uh, along with everything else, they would bring kids in who they thought might have mental issues and running them through tests to kind of help determine if they had these mental issues or not. So, again, we, we won't comment on that at all. We'll just move on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine that we're going to we're going to add this on top of all the other stuff that you have to do? Right. We're going to start testing kids. Oh, okay. Here? (laughs) You're bringing them here? 
So we're just going to do more here. Okay, that that's cool. Now, we've discussed this whole thing before, but we, we do need to touch on it again for the Danvers here. Dr. Thomas Kirkbride, um, you remember his name from other hospitals that we've done. Mm-hmm. He served the Pennsylvania Hospital as the superintendent from 1841 to 1883. He created a humane and compassionate environment for his patients and believed that beautiful settings restored patients to a more natural, quote, balance of senses. So Dr. Kirkbride's progressive therapies and innovative writings on hospital design, along with management, became known as the Kirkbride Plan, which, again, we've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Now, these uh, influenced in one form or another almost every American state hospital by the turn of the century, including Danvers. So if you remember back when we talked about it before for that hospital, think about it in this one, too. It, it was all about, you know, a storybook setting will help yeah. regain your sanity yeah. and help with your problems, which... I mean, in some ways, you can't argue that if well, you got I mean, you nice, know, peaceful settings. What's the alternative, you know? Yeah, we're, right. <laughs> we're going right. to throw you in a dark, stinky dungeon. Right. See see how that helps. <laughs> right. Which we just put talked about no, that last no episode. <laughs> no. Last episode, we talked about the solitary confinement darkness. So, you right. know. Might as we see how that turned out, so we might as well talk about the other way here. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a a good idea. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, you I know mean, really I mean you know on the face of it at, at the beginning it, it was a good idea and and I feel like we we said this before in the last one but you know in when you first look at the Kirkbride plan you go yeah okay. I mean that 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 seems right. Let's get fresh air and yeah. light and and a nice setting and all that stuff. But in this case, in Danvers' case, and probably in a lot of others, that actually precipitated their downfall because Danvers was a success at first. Mm-hmm. You know, it it was. Everybody loved it. And so by 1900, the Danvers State Hospital employed 125 people and had treated more than 9,500 patients since opening. Now, its good reputation actually proved to be the undoing of Danvers because over the next 20 years, here's what we talked about before, the population of the hospital swelled to more than 2,000 patients but its official capacity, anyone want to guess? 450. Wow. I so, mean. That's overcrowding, Matt. Quadruple. Yeah. And and then some. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just, you can't take care of that many people inside a facility that's designed for, you know, a fraction of that. Right. You know, the, you just, the Kirkbride plan would have been great for those 450 people. Yeah, but now you, you've crammed, you know, 1,600 more people in there. Yeah. And I can see where, you know, if 
If you're a family and and one of your loved ones is going to have to go to a facility like this for treatment, mm-hmm. you you want them to go to the best. Sure, you want absolutely. them to go to to the 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 prettiest, the well kept. Yeah. You know, you you don't want to go to the one that looks like an institution, and you 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 see that there's been a, a there's been a shift over the last ten or fifteen years in healthcare in this country, where you know, they, they do try and make an effort to make a lot of these places, hospitals, nursing homes, look less institutional mm-hmm. and and more home and homely, inviting and things like sure. that. So the the idea is still alive. But again, if you're if you have this lovely, beautiful environment and you've crammed this many people into it. It's not going to be lovely and inviting for very long. Nope, it's not, and and that that's the that's the problem. You know that that's what, like we said, is the is the undoing of Danvers because exactly what you're saying. Everybody said, "Oh, I want to send my my people there." You know, my yeah. my husband, my son, my my daughter. I want them to go to the best, and the Kirkbride plan seems to be the best, and so this is the hospital around us that has that Kirkbride plan instituted, mm-hmm. and they just got filled up. They couldn't take anymore, you know? Right. Now, administrators actually begged the state for money to build more rooms and hire more staff, but the state said no. So they... From what I read, they actually approached the state several times. It wasn't a one and done kind of thing. They kept going to the state and saying, hey, we need more money. We got to build on. You know, we don't have enough room. And and the state said, no, you're doing fine. So <laughs> you're doing fine. Yeah, you're doing fine. You, you got this. It, it, we haven't heard any complaints yet. Well, yeah, that because of that, that kind of to use this word again, precipitated the horrific abuses that started shortly after that. So now we turn to the dark history of Danvers a little bit. Patients walked through the hallways naked, and they lived in their own filth from a lack of basic hygiene. People weren't cured, and their symptoms ended up getting worse. So they didn't didn't have the ability to take care of them, and then yeah. they just all together stopped trying to take care of them. They yeah, they just, were just housing them at at that point. Yeah, at that point, you just sit in here. If you have no clothes, sorry. If if you poo on yourself, sorry. You know, and it, it just it created more issues with their conditions than it helped. Um, like we talked about in the last episode, when you're just stuck somewhere in solitary. That's going to cause issues and, you know, it causes even more issues when you have mental health problems from the beginning. That's just making it worse. That's not how you fix things. Another thing that is not how you fix things is shock therapy and straight jackets became the norm. (laughs) So it wasn't just a thing that they did occasionally. Shock therapy and straight jackets were commonplace in Danvers. The thinking was that jolts of electricity could either alter a patient's brain 
or make the patient afraid of shock therapy and scare them into submission. So when they misbehaved, they were put in straight jackets and forgotten about. So nice. again, yeah, throw you in a straight jacket, hook you up to an electroshock therapy thing, zap you, and then go throw you in a room somewhere. It's horrible. Horrible. And it makes you wonder why there's such bad juju on this property, right? No, it doesn't. Yeah. Now, when the shock therapy failed, the lobotomy started. In 1939, the medical community was looking for a permanent fix to the crisis facing mental health facilities, and the population of the hospital swelled to 2,360 people. And a total of 278 people died at the hospital that year in 1939. So medical science saw lobotomies as a cure for anyone's insanity and as a way to stop the deaths. So we've talked about lobotomies in another episode and how horrific they really were because it didn't do anything to cure the problem. It just it it, it cut off your ability to express yourself. You were basically just a zombie at that point. Mm-hmm. You were just going through it was basically you were just surviving. So, yeah, yeah you, you were just, you were alive. Yeah, that was about it. Right. Um, it stopped the deaths in one way, but then you just had a, a lot of lobotomized patients in the hospital that, again, would perpetuate the filth and the straitjackets that they were putting people in. So... Um, neurology experts often called Danvers State Hospital the, quote, birthplace of the prefrontal lobotomy. Now, this moniker came from its widespread use, but also from the procedure's refinement at the hospital. So apparently they got real good at doing it real quick. <laughs> Isn't that awful? They got real good at this. Yeah, you know, that shows you how often it there, was done. Yeah. And then, all right. Remember the... Um, the movie From Hell with Johnny Depp. Oh, yeah. Um, the guy in that movie had perfected a new way to do a prefrontal lobotomy in that movie. And it was just a, a thing like this that he put up against the person's head and hit it with a hammer. And it went into the skull and severed that part. And then he did it on the right side and then on the top. And he, you know, they, it was this big deal. They had people watching and that's kind of what, you know, a, a good example of what yeah. this would have been. That's what people would have been doing here and perfecting the prefrontal lobotomy in that setting. You know, if they, they were teaching, we, you know, we read a little bit ago where they had become a teaching type hospital. So that would have been the scenario that it would have been in a bunch of doctors to be watching as this one guy does a prefrontal lobotomy on a patient suffering from mental insanity in quotes. Mm-hmm. Now visitors to Danvers state hospital in the early 1940s reported lobotomy patients wandering aimlessly through the halls of the hospital. Um, at least the patients didn't complain because many of them just stared blankly at the walls, is what this says. Well, yeah, like we just talked about, you're basically a zombie. 
Uh, patients walked around in a drugged, hellish daze, and no one would let them leave and held them against their will if they, after the lobotomy, even had any will. So yeah. it, it was it was a, a hellish place, and the we we've been talking about some pretty bad stuff, but. I have found some actual excerpts from patient abuse reports from 1992. Yeah. So if if this wasn't bad enough, wait, let's make it worse. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to read a few quick incidents here. Um, If if you don't want to hear them, that's fine. Skip on ahead. Um, But we're going to go. None of them are real bad. It just kind of compounds the issues that we've been talking about. If you've made it through our lobotomy talk, I think you can make it through this. You'll be fine. Yeah. Maybe. So, incident one, Nurse D at Danvers State Hospital witnessed employee A escort a female patient to the quiet room. Later, the patient, L, was not presenting difficulties. Mr. A pushed Mrs. L into the quiet room from behind with both hands. Mrs. L fell to the floor. Nurse D characterized the incident as abuse and indicates that she spoke to A about the incident and that she wrote a verbal warning to A about unnecessary roughness. Now, a copy of this letter was sent to assistant director of nurses. Um, Neither of the neither nurse D nor the assistant director of nursing reported the incident to officials above them, but it was written down in the hospital records there. Now, incident two, three weeks after the first incident, Mr. A was assisting in the restraint of patient H. Now, Mr. H was tied to a bed at the time of the incident. Mr. A was pumping forcefully on H's chest. So kind of like compressions, but no need for compressions because he wasn't having a problem. Now, the chief hospital supervisor, a registered nurse, witnessed this and told Mr. A to stop. Mr. A did not stop until his hands were removed by the supervisor. Now, this was also witnessed by another staff member and a mental health worker um, and supervisor on the unit uh, also witnessed this as well. The chief hospital supervisor stated in his interview that he could not decide if this constituted abuse, but later decided that it was a, a write-up. So he didn't report the incident to the DPPC, just like the first one. So again, we've got two abuses here that the heads of staff didn't report all the way up, which seems weird. Anyway, incident number three. This one's a little bit longer than the other two. Now, according to the written complaint filed by the day program nurses, this incident occurred in the evening on a ward porch. Client X and another patient were playing chess and were swearing at Mr. A. Mr. A then placed a help call, took off his glasses, pointed to the two patients and said, quote, you guys come here. The patients did not move. So Mr. A began throwing chairs and approached the two patients. Now, Mr. A grabbed client X around the neck, at which point X fell over a chair. Mr. A then swung a chair at X hitting him in the right knee. A fight then ensued in which the other patient knocked Mr. A to the floor. 
Staff from other areas began to arrive and restrain the two clients involved in the altercation and other patients that were in the area. Now, according to Mr. X, while he was restrained to the gurney, Mr. A was kneeling on his face. According Mm. to other staff involved in the restraint, it did not require an excessive amount of force from the four or five staff to restrain Mr. X. So another patient who was present at the time stated that Mr. A smashed her head on the floor in the process of trying to restrain her and sat on her head when she was restrained. There was no evidence at the statements that uh, she required uh, that much restraint. So these are three pretty bad abuse reports from Danver State Hospital in 1992. I think we're seeing what Mr. A stands for. Yeah. (laughs) Jerk. (laughs) Yeah. I think A was his first name and Hole was his last name. (laughs) That's right. So the lack of funding for the Danvers Hospital continued and buildings ended up falling into disrepair, which made the conditions even worse. Now, finally... Finally, the state intervened. Um, You know, portions of Danvers State Hospital were shut down all the way back in 1969. But Danvers State Hospital was not closed until June 24th, 1992, due to budget cuts within the mental health system by the former governor, William Weld. So it wasn't long after these abuse reports that I read um, were filed that Danvers ended up closing down altogether, but it was falling into disrepair. It was overcrowded. Um, You had bad nursing staff and abuses that had probably, you know, that was probably the way it was from years and years ago because of the overcrowding. And I mean, the conditions there were just horrible. So, you know, before we get into Matt's part of it, one of the questions you have to ask, were the conditions there so horrible because of something that was left on the property from Judge Hawthorne's time, that bad energy there? Or was it just a compounded thing where, yeah, that bad energy was there and then the hospital bad energy was on it, which caused what Matt will talk about here next. But be thinking about what how you feel about that. Was it a just an accumulation or did the very first bad juju from judge Hawthorne's time cause all of this? Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that, you know, was, was on my mind was what, what came first, you know, is this a a chicken or the egg kind of situation? Was there some, some lingering darkness on that, that land that Mm -hmm. just infiltrated the hospital that just happened to to house all these, um, you know, patients who were suffering with whatever type of mental illness, um, which just made it that much worse. Um, Or or did the fact that this overcrowded mental hospital, you know, bring about all this negativity that just stuck Mm-hmm. You know, to the to the building, to the walls, to the floor th- that caused some problems. You know, whenever we talk about a place like this, it it seems like you 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 can you can see it coming. 
and you see it coming. The abuse, death, um, sadness, especially in the case of, of a mental hospital where there's, um, where, where there's patients there who, you know, sometimes they, they're not even aware of where they are or, or who's around them or what's going on. And it just, it, it just brings about this, this energy that makes things that much worse for, right. for the other patients, you know, for the staff that tries to go in there and help. It, it just, it just hits you like a ton of bricks and, and it just brings everything down. Now, Adam didn't talk much about the the actual architecture of the building, but the building looks like a castle. And now, yeah, you can see the pictures. There, there are pictures of it. Um, you know, before it was, um, it, it began to be demolished. Um, parts of it are still standing. The part that looks like a castle. Um. So it's got almost an ominous appearance, um, so much so that it's reported that Danvers State Hospital was actually the inspiration for H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham Sanitarium, which appears in many of his stories. Mm-hmm. And if that name, Arkham, sounds familiar, uh, then you're probably a DC Comics fan <laughs> and recognize it as the frequent home of such characters as the Joker, the Riddler, and Scarecrow. Right. So, in turn, Danvers inspired Lovecraft's Arkham Sanitarium, which in turn inspired DC author uh, author Dennis O'Neill to create Batman's Arkham Asylum. Right. You know, so and if Lovecraft had it, you know it's a weird place. <laughs> you know it was a weird place. You know, it, it must have been just lovely. You know, oh, yeah. especially in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> but but prior to the property being purchased in 2005 and partially demolished in 2006, visitors to the hospital reported hearing disembodied voices, wails, and patients asking for help. Now, the whole help me thing really creeps me out. You know, I don't, yep, don't want to hear the help me. You know, that just, ugh, that's. You know, it's like, you know, when you see the help me written on the wall, you know, yeah, that's like, oh, yeah, I don't want to be here. Right. But that's boy, not a spirit you want interaction with. <laughs> yeah. Uh-uh. No, I, I can't help you. I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I, I'm an idiot. I can't help you. I know <laughs> somebody else can. I'm not going to do it. But full on apparitions of patients have been spotted as well, which again, is a pretty rare occurrence, even when you're talking about stuff that's already pretty rare when we're discussing, you know, paranormal experiences. Mm-hmm. And it's even more rare at Danvers since it was closed to the public. And although an estimated 120 ghost hunting groups had tried to get access to the hospital at night, they unfortunately failed. However, a few of them did succeed in getting to go in during the day, but only one team, the Rhode Island Paranormal Research Group, has investigated uh, at night in the last 25 years. Now, they have not released any evidence from that night, nor have they spoken about it. But you I wonder know, if it terrified them that much, you know? Yeah, well, maybe, but... 
Adam, I think that kind of lends to the mystique of a place like Danvers. Yeah. You know, it 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 almost makes the stories that much more, you know, when when nobody's mm-hmm. been able to go in there and either prove or disprove that there's anything going on. Right. Now, there's really only been one eyewitness report to surface over the years. Gerilyn uh, Lavoisier, I hope I'm saying that right, um, stated that she saw a ghost when she lived there as a child. Now, Lavoisier grew on the grounds, uh, grew up on the grounds of Danvers State Hospital in a house that was lent to her father, hospital administrator Gerald Richards. Now, while in high school, Geraldine remembers something pulling the sheets off of her bed, but Jeez. there was no one in the room. Now, that's that takes some effort. Mm-hmm. You ever gone in and tried to rip the sheets off somebody? You know, you got to pull. I can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Family show. Yeah. Um, but on one occasion... Gerilyn saw the apparition of an older, scowling woman, which was witnessed by her and her brother. Now, Lavoisier said that they were terrified, but she never felt threatened by the ghost. And she also confirmed that it only happened one time. Hmm. Now, while the number of documented paranormal experiences may be low, there's a great deal of potential ghostly activity inside the hospital. From 1920 to 1945, the hospital and its staff committed horrible acts, as Adam mentioned earlier, including lobotomies, systemic neglect, and restraining children for days at a time. Now, the negative energy that one would assume would be left by this kind of activity had to have just a massive psychic imprint on this building. Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. If if you buy into this idea of of buildings being able to hold on to to energy, you know, then you can't even imagine right. how much negativity this building would have would have been holding on to. And it's like we've talked before, and I, I, the way I feel about it, and I could be totally off, but the way I feel about it is when something like that happens. Say you're in a room and something bad happened or an argument happened or whatever, that negative energy kind of sloughs off the person and sticks to the wall. Mm-hmm. And I, I picture it like sludge on a wall. And after so many years of this happening in a building, the walls are just covered with this negative sludge and, and bad feelings and energy. And it's going to stay. You can't yeah. get that off easily. You know, it's like trying to clean up tar. You're not going to be able to get that off. And that's why when you walk into a room after a fight, somebody having a fight, you can feel it in the room. And it's that negative energy sludge. And so when I picture a place like Danvers, I picture the walls just dripping with this negative energy. Right. And, And for those of you that maybe don't believe in this, this negative energy idea, walk into a funeral home. Mm-hmm. You know, and and think about what funeral directors do to try to make these families feel at ease and at peace. I mean, 
everything about it is about, uh, you know, it's a celebration of a person's life. Sure, there's a lot of, of sadness and despair and loss, but everything that these these funeral directors try to do is to focus on, you know, the life, you know, the mm-hmm. love that you shared, the, the opportunity to get to spend with this person, everything. And you stand there and you feel it from the minute you walk in, even if it's yep. something in your own head because of where you are. Right. I have been to funerals and funeral homes of people that I didn't know. I didn't know them personally. Mm-hmm. Maybe I knew a family member, you know, but I, I was just there in a su- support, you know? Yep. And the minute you walk in, you just, you feel it. You feel it. Well, it's coming from the people that are there. It's coming from all the people that have been in and out of there for however long it's been, you know, this building's been standing. Right. It's there and you feel it. It's like, you know, it, it's like you walk in and it, and it feels like somebody has just kind of draped a blanket over you. Sometimes it's heavier than others, but you feel it. So when, when I think when people just kind of poo poo this idea that there's something that's happened over and over and over and over in a, in a place that, and it doesn't leave a mark, I just, I, I feel like it does. Now, whether that mark, whether that energy pulls in paranormal activity, I, I can't say. Yeah, but I think the know. energy is there. I think we, we've all kind of felt it. Sure. So, There's a, on that topic, the, the funeral home topic. Yeah. In Nashville, there is an Irish restaurant that is in a building that used to be a funeral home. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. I didn't know that it was a funeral home until <laughs> afterward, but I, I like the restaurant. Don't get me wrong. The great food, oh, but yeah. you walk in and if you're even the slightest bit sensitive to anything like that, which I kind of consider myself a dummy when it mm-hmm. comes to a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, those type of feelings, mm-hmm. but even I could feel like I walked in and I was like, this feels odd. Like the, the, the atmosphere does not feel like a restaurant. It doesn't feel like you would think it should. And you know, there was happy Irish music being played and it just didn't seem to fit. It didn't feel right. And later on, when I looked up the history of that restaurant, I realized it was a funeral home and I'm sure, you know, the one I'm talking about, Matt, it's over close to the airport. Um, but I mean, again, the the food's great. the The restaurant itself is great, but you can tell that there was something about that building yeah. that didn't fit with the restaurant vibe, and it's because it was a funeral home. So I'll tell you about that particular place. Um, it it was a different style restaurant before it was the Irish restaurant. Yeah, and I had been to that restaurant. And my mom used to work out there by mm-hmm. that, but I mean, just down the road from where that restaurant is. And I had gone out there one day and met her for lunch. And she's like, well, let's go here. The food's really good. It was not the Irish place at that point. Yeah. And I walk in and I'm looking around and we're sitting down and we're eating. And I look at her and I go, 
God, this place looks like a funeral home. And she laughed and she was like, it used to be. <laughs> and I was like, you got to be kidding me. They put a restaurant in a funeral home. She's like, yeah. well, you know, yeah, it's kind of weird, but it's just a building. I was like, okay. Now, if you say um, so. Now, you know, it, it looks less, and, and trust me, it does not look like a modern funeral no, home. I mean, this no. building is is quite old, and it has been, I mean, it, it's a historical building. Yeah, um, many decades old. Yeah, so, I mean, it is. it does not, it's not like they took, you know, one that was, you know, designed like 20 years ago <laughs> and turned yeah. it into a restaurant. That'd be really obvious, but it, yeah, right. it's an older you know, it's got like two two floors. You know, it's different mm-hmm. it's different styling. But you, you you look at it and you're like, wait, <laughs> right. So people that uh, that did get the opportunity to visit Danvers may not may not had seen a ghost, but they definitely could feel the patient's pain from years ago. And some paranormal experts believe that this may help create a personalized haunting. So this means you may not see a patient's ghost, but the building could manifest your inner fears, doubts, and agony. Now, this brings up an entirely new topic when it comes to hauntings, because your own brain can scare the living daylights out of you. So it, it does make you wonder in cases like this, does knowing the history of the brutality of a place like Danvers put thoughts in your mind that terrify you? Mm-hmm. Or does that heavy psychic residue that Adam's talking about that's left over from the pain and suffering that occurred in a specific location just weigh on you to the point that you actually feel it? Yeah. We, now, we hear paranormal investigators say all the time, and it's what Adam and I were just talking about, how a place will feel heavy. And and I know that, you know, we were just talking about, you've been in places that just seem off, and I think heavy is a good word to describe the feeling that you get. But it does make you wonder, not just about Danvers, but about a lot of these places that we've talked about. If you don't know the history is it really all that scary or when you know the history are you more likely to experience something even if it's just a feeling you know does having that history tell your brain well this place is bad and it's negative and there was a lot of bad things that happened here does that make you more go oh i really i really felt it you know, I really mm-hmm. felt this sadness when I entered the room. And we'll we'll hear that from, you know, a, a lot of investigators. And oftentimes you'll hear that from psychics. But if you didn't know, if you had no opportunity to to research a place that you were going and you walked in, would you feel it? So I know. I mean, we talked to our good friend Randy and, you know, he he has said that he has been in places that he has never been before. He he knows no history, nothing at all, and and mm-hmm. well, gets gets a feeling, you yep. know, says yep. something bad has happened here, and he may not necessarily be able to tell you what, but he can definitely feel the energy that something bad happened there. Mm-hmm. You know, not everybody is going to be as sensitive as somebody like Randy, but you know, I think to a degree, a lot of us have had that 
that feeling. So it, it just makes it makes me wonder. I mean, Adam says, you know, he went into this restaurant not knowing that it used to be a funeral, but yet he felt it. He, mm-hmm. he felt something off. You know, my statement was based entirely just upon how it was laid out. Um, yeah. And I was looking around going, this place looks like a funeral home. But, you know, Adam's, you know, he really felt something. So, you know, it just it makes you wonder. You know, if you if and, you don't if you didn't know the history of Danvers and you visited there, you know, would it would would you feel anything? Would you experience anything? Would would right. you see anything? Right. And it's like um, you and I talked with Jerry and Tracy when we, when we were on their Facebook live streaming thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and. I brought up this thing that I'd been thinking about for a while, and it kind of applies to this as well, because you kind of brought it up that Danvers would manufacture the haunting from your own um, internal fears and stuff. Right. Is hauntings, what I've kind of started to notice when we talk about all these and, and we research a lot of the stuff, hauntings are, are so personal mm-hmm. that you know could a, a, a ghost a spirit could it be this you know blob of energy and your perception your history your thoughts actually mold it into the shape that you see mm-hmm. that the form that it takes the actions that it causes and sometimes i feel like that's the case because you can be given a prompt of this happens in this building and then it happens to you. Right. But if you're not given a prompt and you go in here and there is something, there's this amalgamous form of of a spirit and you mold it with your experiences and your fears and your thoughts and it becomes something personal to you and you have an experience that nobody else would have at that location because it's, touching on your uh your psychology and your your thoughts and the more we research the more i feel like that could be what's going on yeah it with spirits and stuff is just like they're saying with danvers it manufactures out of you and it becomes something so personal to you and that's why you can't get evidence of it that's why you can't tell anybody about it that's why you you don't get pictures mm-hmm is because it's a feeling personal to you, manufactured through you. Yeah, and it I don't doesn't know. doesn't make it any less legitimate. I, I right. think what, exactly what Adam is saying is it's it's kind of like um, it's kind of like the the taste thing we we've, we've discussed in other shows. Mm-hmm. If I eat something, it tastes a certain way to me. If I eat celery. It tastes like metal to me. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. That's my <laughs> my body, my chemical makeup. If Amanda eats celery, it's like she's eating, you know, nectar of the gods. Yep. Okay. For me, it's cilantro tastes her, like soap. She might as well be eating a turd when I'm watching this because I'm like, why? Right. Why do you eat this? Yep. I'm with you. It's because it's so subjective and there is absolutely no way for her to share to me how it tastes to her right or but vice you're still versa. eating 
you're still eating celery. It doesn't change the the fact that y'all are eating celery. Yeah. Yep. So much like I say that, because much like what Adam is describing is the experience that you have may not be what someone else has. And someone else may not have anything. They may not feel anything because maybe it doesn't touch them in that way. Right. But when you experience it, this is what you experience for for yep. whatever reason. This is how you're going to experience this. It's the same, you know, I, I think about people that, that ride roller coasters. You know, they want that thrill. They get that exhilaration. Other people are terrified or, or to the point that they're like, I'm not even going to get on that thing because I hate that feeling. Right, right. This person loves it. And it's not the same. It's different. Yep. So maybe this is what this is what we're looking at. And maybe Adam's right. This is why we don't have definitive evidence of of a haunting. You know, we Mm -hmm. only have experiences. So that brings us to the point in the episode where we ask the question that we always ask, and it's what do you guys think? Do you think there's something really happening at Danvers? Do you think there's really, you know, a haunting there, even though there's not that many stories out about it? But a lot of that is because not a lot of people are allowed there, you know? So do you think there is some, you know, that, that negative energy sludge that we talked about there? And also tell us, what how do you feel about the personal nature of hauntings that we discussed? And... And, you know, do you think that it, it's a manifestation through your filters like we were talking about? Um, and what are your thoughts on celery? Because Matt and I don't <laughs> like it. So let us know that as well. Neither one of us. I hate it. You can't pay me enough to eat it. Right. I, I don't like cilantro either. Cilantro tastes like soap. Oh, no, I like cilantro. So. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I ate a lot of soap as a kid because, you know. Oh, there no, you go. Yeah. You know. But, um. <laughs> But, you know, hey, let us know. And one of the best places to let us know what you think is in our Facebook group. Um, You can go on Facebook and search Graveyard Tales. We have a lot of great people in there. You get a lot of really great stories. And it's a lot of fun. It's a a great big group. And, uh, you know, we, we welcome you to come check it out. But we're also on Instagram and Twitter. Again, just search Graveyard Tales. That's the easiest way to find us. And while you're milling around on social media, stop by our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com, and on mm-hmm. our website, you can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise, like the poster you see behind me. Um, you can listen to the show. You can find out a little bit more about Adam and myself, and you can become a patron. And thank you so much for everyone who has donated uh, to the show, because it really helps yes. Adam and I keep going and... Um, not make it one big long ad for you guys. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So go and rate and review us on uh, iTunes. It brings us up the charts. It brings more people into the graveyard. So until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. Sorry. That's going to be a good outtake for the Patreon people. I got distracted. <laughs> Sorry, people that are watching this. I'm uh, getting texts from my mom. So. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, Matt is getting texts, and I just got two texts, and I was looking down to make sure it wasn't an emergency. <laughs> right, right. You know. So, oh, well. All right, here we go again. This is how it worked, Cal. Yeah, take two. 